0: I miss my partner in crime, Brian, who usually does that part and does it way better than I do. So let's get right into the text for this week. 1 Kings chapter 18, we are looking at the story of Elijah the prophet and sort of all that surrounds his ministry in Israel. And last week, we left off with this cliffhanger. Elijah has said, gather the priests of Baal and the priestesses of Asherah, bring them to the mountain There's going to be a showdown, and that's where we pick up today. So I'm going to ask if you would to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Now, it's 20 verses, guys. So hang in there. Don't lock your knees. I don't want any fainting here with this long reading. And if you need to take a breather, if you need to sit down halfway through, that's okay. But I think you'll be all right. So here we go. Big breath. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull, and prepare it first for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, Or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as that midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water pour on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering. And the wood and the stones and the dust. And licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and slaughtered them there. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth in these next few moments and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. God, and even as we consider... Uh, This passage that that happened long ago in in this land of Mount Carmel. We think even now that this same land right now is being battled over in Israel. With violence and hostages being taken and um, many dead and much bloodshed, God. We pray for your peace and your intervention. We pray for your protection. We pray that those who have been taken hostage would be released. We pray, God would bring your miraculous healing to that region that is so wounded. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys go ahead and be seated. If you don't know what I'm talking about with the prayer there, I hope that you'll check the news later today and see um, right now Israel and Palestine have um, found themselves in in a really, really heartbreaking, grievous conflict. That's Involved a surprise attack yesterday with many people right now being taken hostage. It's something that we need to be praying for greatly. So um, please be aware of that. Um, David, I'm realizing I did not remind about, this. you got it going? Sweet. Thanks, brother. Okay. Whew. Where are we? 1 Kings eighteen twenty through 40. Okay, so I have been sort of previewing this passage for weeks now. Like last week, I started my sermon by saying we're getting into the spicy part of 1 Kings. This is what I was referring to. This is the spicy part. I hope it didn't disappoint. I think it's one of the most cool, interesting, just profound and yes, spicy parts of the scripture and part of that is because I don't know if you guys heard or if you just you don't think it's appropriate to laugh in church I don't know but there was some trash talk in here that Elijah does to the priest of Baal that is hilarious did you catch it so the prophets are dancing around and they're hearing nothing from their God and Elijah says maybe he's in the bathroom." Maybe he's too busy relieving himself, and you need to keep going until he's done. Come on, that's funny. I remember the first time I ever heard a preacher say that in church. I was like a kid. I'm like, that, you can't say that. That's not in the Bible, is it? Yeah, it is. His trash talk game is on point. That's part of why I love Elijah so much. I mean, he would have been a great NBA player. We'll just put it like that. So that's not the only reason, though, that I find this text just so incredibly profound. The the one that I think is the most pressing for me is kind of where my title comes from today, the underdog. And it's because what the Lord purposely does in this contest between him and the false god, Baal, is he, he makes the odds so incredibly stacked against him. He purposely stacks the deck against himself. To show his people that, well, we'll get to that in a second when he's trying to show his people. Now, we know that the God who created all things simply by speaking them to an existence could never be the underdog in the true sense of the word. And yet, he, when he goes into this contest between him and the priest of Baal, he, he doesn't negotiate kind of a fair level playing field. That's usually what happens when there's a big contest, when there's a big epic showdown. You know, and, and, and boxing matches, part, part of the reason that they happen so few and far between is sometimes the boxers have to agree on just every little detail of where, where the match is going to take place. And, and um, you know, what time it's going to be and what time of year it is because they want to make sure that nobody has an unfair advantage. The Lord does not negotiate those details. In fact, he purposely seems to make it so that he is at a great, great, great disadvantage. Now, some of the ways that that's the case are obvious. For instance, the numbers. There's 450 priests of Baal. That's the number that's repeated multiple times. There's probably even more that are there in support of them. The text right before this one talks about there's these prophets of Asherah as well that are there. But 450 is the big number that we're given time and time again in this text. And we're told that they all are assembled there and they all are invited to call upon their God who will deliver this sign. And by contrast, how many prophets of the Lord are there to contend on his side? One. One verses 450. The odds are stacked against him. So that one's kind of easy to see. There's other details here that maybe aren't as easy to see. For instance, where this contest takes place. It takes place on Mount Carmel, which is part of this chain of hills kind of near the ocean in sort of the Israel-Palestine region. And over time, this particular mountain, it's kind of not what we would think as of a mountain, sort of a glorified hill. But this particular place became sacred to the priests of Baal and to those that dedicated their worship to this false god. It was kind of his home turf. And we even have, um, there's an Assyrian uh, king, generations after this, that refers to this exact place, and he calls it the promontory of the sacred god Baal which one of the commentators I was reading this week basically said, you know, let's just call it Baal's Bluff. It's his spot. His altars are built there. His worship is sort of chiefly stationed there. And it might even be alluded to in our text a little bit. You might remember that when it's Elijah's turn to offer sacrifice, it says he has to repair this altar of the Lord that had fallen down. Almost as if like long ago when Israel was following the Lord, there was an altar to God there, but it had become sort of fallen into disuse and disrepair. And so now it's just like a a crumbled stones over on the side with moss growing over it because it's so unused. This place that the contest is held is Baal's home turf. He has home field advantage is what I'm trying to say. 450 verses 1, home field advantage, the priests of Baal get all day long to do their thing. Morning and afternoon and midday, the whole day is given to them to coerce their God. And not only that, the very sign that they are asked to produce is right in Baal's wheelhouse, so to speak. I told you a few weeks ago. That Baal was considered to be the storm god. He was the one that brought the the rain and the wind and the thunder and most importantly, the lightning. How do you think that this stack of wood underneath the altar and the sacrifice is going to light on fire? It's going to be a lightning bolt that falls from heaven. Makes it combust right then and there. And so when Elijah proposes this contest, I'm sure the priests of Baal were like, oh, yeah, that's, that's right in our God's wheelhouse. He's going to have a field day with this. By contrast, we have the one prophet of the Lord who doesn't get all day to sing and dance and pray and work himself into some religious frenzy. He has one moment to say a simple prayer. And his altar that he creates is this old, broken-down, beaten-up altar that he stacks with 12 stones. And then on top of that, he pours jar after jar of water upon the sacrifice itself so that it's not just going to be some rogue lightning bolt that lights this thing on fire. That ain't going to work with a soaked and saturated sacrifice. It's going to take an incredible miracle. That's the two sides that we have squaring off against each other. So if you're a better on this contest, who you got? Where's your money? I know that you're probably, I mean, you're in church, so you can't say, bail. <laughs> but you're probably thinking it. And I, feel, I bet you the odds maker in Vegas, that's what they're thinking. 450 versus one, home field advantage, a huge time advantage. They've got bail, right? Most sharp bettors probably would have bet on him. But that's precisely the point of this text. God has set it up in such a way that he has presented his contest where there is insurmountable odds against himself. Because he is out. To prove a point on this day. Prove a point both to his people. 2,000 years ago. But also to prove a point to you and to me. As people reading this today. In the year 2023. And here's the point that God's trying to make. Not trying to make. He does make. He alone is God. He alone. There isn't a false god like Baal or Asherah. That rivals him. Nor is there an idol that can rival his worship. You know what I mean by idol there. Not just a a little wooden statue or stone statue. I mean anything in our life that would demand our worship and affection. There's a lot of things that does that, that do that, don't, isn't there? One of my favorite books is by Pastor Tim Keller, who sadly passed away a few months ago, but it's called Counterfeit Gods, and it outlines how we can make idols out of so many things in modern life, even good things. Political power, money, career, family. Anything that would demand of us that we sacrifice our time, our money, and our affection to worship it, to give us significance and give us meaning and to give us hope, that's an idol. And what God is saying here in this text to us is that there is no false God, there is no idol, there is no relationship in your life, no accomplishment, no career, no philosophy, no worldview. Whatever you can imagine, there is nothing that can rival him as being number one. By setting up these odds against himself, he's making sure that we don't wiggle out of it. There's no way they could have said on this day, oh, he got lucky. No, 450 against one, that's not luck. There's no way we can explain it away and say, ah, it probably was just that day or that season that it worked out that way. No, he sets this up like this so there is no doubt, no excuse, no wiggling out of the implications. He alone is worthy of our praise and our affection. Stop giving it to other things. I keep saying alone here. He alone is worthy. Because there is a verse that makes me think that alone is a key takeaway for us. Look back at the beginning of our text that we read. I think it's verse 21. It says this, Elijah came near to all the people, and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. This kind of clarifies the picture for me of what's going on in Israel in this day. And it's not that the Israelites had just wholesale abandoned their God. It's not that they had completely turned their back on him. The issue is that they had a divided heart. They had divided affections. And they were giving part of their love and affection to the one true God. But they were also giving part of their love and affection to Baal or some other false idol. They were mixing and matching. A little bit of faithfulness to the Lord, a little bit of faithfulness to this false idol. Why? There's probably a lot of reasons. I mean we know what it's like to kind of have fickle hearts that in one moment are are singing songs like we did today about how we love the Lord above everything else and then probably later tonight we'll find ourselves giving our our thoughts and our our worries and our affection and our heart to some other thing that's not God. We know how that fickle heart can and I imagine in Israel there were Israelites that, that honored the Sabbath and they celebrated the Passover and they, they honored their father and mother like the fifth commandment said so they did some good things to honor the Lord but in the very same breath they would do things to honor a false god so it wasn't raining outside well Baal's the storm god supposedly so let's just say a prayer to him just in case Uh, It it seems like the the political powers in Israel really love this new God, Baal, so maybe we should just uh, go to his worship services to, you know, curry favor with the people that are popular and in power. And on and on, there's so many reasons, whether it's they're hedging their bets to cover all their bases or whether it's just that they have fickle hearts so often like ours that are just tossed to and fro depending on whatever their worries or affections are that day. I don't know. But all I know is Elijah says to them, stop it. Stop limping between the worship of multiple gods. Choose who is God and worship him with all that you have. Worship him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Enough with this divided affection. It's a word I feel like resonates very powerfully for us even here 2,000 years later. Now, as I've said before, this entire contest is meant to help them kind of resolve that. Elijah doesn't just say to them, stop limping between two opinions. He actually is going to show them with an incredible miracle that there is really only one option here. And that is to worship the Lord with everything we've got. So let's look at what happened when the contest gets underway we know what's at stake we know the disadvantages that god has sort of stacked the deck against himself but we're told that on the day that the contest took place the priest of baal get to start first and they got to choose the bull the one do you notice that present two bulls and they get to choose which one they want for the sacrifice so yet there's another little thing of they have the advantage And they prepare the sacrifice on their altar, which is probably like the Cadillac of altars on Mount Carmel. And they begin to sing and dance and pray and limp around the altar. I love that wordplay. Elijah said, stop limping between two options. And now it tells us the priest of Baal limp around their altar. They're probably trying to work themselves up into some sort of religious frenzy to make Their gods show up in the way that he's supposed to. He's the storm god, right? They want thunder. They want lightning. And as the day goes on, they they get a little bit more desperate because he's not answering. And so they start to cut themselves. They start to stab themselves. They start maybe to show him that they are serious. They start to show him that they are committed and they spill their own blood on this altar. They do all they can to cry out to him. And after it all, we read one of the most profound verses in the whole scripture. It says this. Let me find it. Verse 29. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. those moments you're reading the bible and it's just there's a phrase that just hits you between the eyes that's what happened with me this week as i read that i have referenced it already but that 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 book by tim keller where he talks about all the different things in our life that can be idols that we give our worship to one of the things he notes is sometimes idolatry becomes revealed in our life is when we get in our, find ourselves in crisis when we find ourselves in suffering. When we find ourselves in extreme situations, and we cry out to the idol that we've given so much time and money and attention to, and it's nowhere to be found. Or in the words of the scripture, no one answered. No one paid attention. So now we move on to Elijah's turn. He tells all the people to come to him, and he takes this old, decrepit, fallen-down altar like I told you before, I, I picture it, these stones covered in moss and cobwebs. They haven't been used in so long. And he starts piecing it back together with 12 stones, calling back a better day in Israel where the 12 tribes were united in their worship of the one true God. And he lays his sacrifice upon the altar. And he douses it with water time and time and time again. And finally, In contrast to all their dancing and singing all day long, he utters one simple prayer. I'll read it for you again. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, And that you have turned their hearts back. That's it. That's all he does. A simple prayer asking for God to show that he alone is the one true God. And in the next moment, fire falls from heaven. And we're told it doesn't just light the altar. Everything is consumed. The rocks, the wood, the burnt offering. The, the water and the trench, all of it. What's left is just this blackened smoke spot. <laughs> because God has shown up. And he has definitively proved against all odds that Baal is nothing. And God is everything. And as people see it, at least in this moment, they see it very clearly. Their response is, the Lord, he is God. And then they say it again, the Lord, he is God. On this day in Israel, God proved definitively, without excuse, without doubt, that he alone is worthy of his people's praise and worship and affection. And even though this happened thousands and thousands of years ago, as we read this text today, he's doing the same to you if you're paying attention. Proving to you that he alone is worthy Of following him with all your heart, mind, soul, spirit, and strength. Stop limping back and forth between other gods. Choose who is God and follow him with your whole heart. I probably could end there. And some of y'all are like, yes, please do. I have one more thing to say. though. It's short. It's brief. Because here's the thing, the main takeaway from this text is that God definitively proves that he alone is God, and the false gods are nothing. And yet, here's the beautiful thing about the scripture, in proving that, and the main point, he also kind of secondarily reveals some things about himself. Yes, he alone is God, but he's also showing you about what kind of God he is. At least for the discerning reader. So let's think about this. I mean, on one hand, he's showing that he is a God who responds to simple faith. It doesn't require hour upon hour of religious exertion. The priest of Baal danced around and sang and they worked themselves up into a frenzy. All thinking, if we can just uh, do this hard enough and long enough and strong enough, our God will answer By contrast, Elijah simply says one simple prayer, a prayer of faith, and the Lord answers him. I was reading an article this week that's saying so often that we in the American church, we become like the prophets of Baal because we convince ourselves that if we pray hard enough, if we read our Bible for long enough, if we show up at every possible ministry opportunity and we listen to Christian radio uh, like 10 hours a day, then God will answer us. That's like being a prophet of Baal, thinking that if I dance all day long, he's going to finally show up. Please, please don't think that you can coerce or twist God's arm through your religious exertions. It does not work like that. And thank God it doesn't. Thank God that he shows up with the simple prayer of faith. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that praying without ceasing or continuing to be faithful in prayer Uh, Sometimes for years and decades, doesn't matter. Yes, it does. In fact, the next passage we look at is going to talk about that. But if you ever begin to convince yourself that your religious exertions somehow force God's hand, don't go down that road. Another thing God shows us about himself is how deadly seriously he takes sin. The very last verse of this text tells us that those priests of Baal that had led God's people astray for all these years, they were taken to the brook and they were killed. God's word multiple times says that those who were responsible for leading people into idolatry and away from his worship were subject to the death penalty. And so what we're seeing is that played out, those those lines in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they're being played out here. God is a holy God in whom there is no sin and definitely no idolatry. Those who had consistently made his people follow false gods were guilty. But the thing that I want to focus on as the last thing that I say is this. What we see in this text is that the God of Israel, the God of the universe, is a God without borders. He's not limited to one place or one territory. His power isn't only active in one small little spot of the globe. You know, we come back to this idea that Mount Carmel is the home territory of Baal. And you'll realize that the reason that was significant is the people thought, the people that create false gods think that their God is powerful in their country or their region. Their God is powerful when he has lots of temples and lots of priests and lots of people worshiping him. But outside of that, his power begins to wane and not be quite as effective. But what the Lord of Israel is showing his people is that he isn't limited by borders. He isn't limited by the amount of temples that there is in a region he isn't limited even by the fact that if people are worshiping him or if he's popular in that area or not. His power is active anywhere in the world. And he shows up on Mount Carmel this day to demonstrate that this, he, the contest could have been in the desert. It could have been in Antarctica. It could have been on the moon. It wouldn't have mattered. God's power isn't limited to a region or a place he's the god who created all things and his power extends everywhere now you're probably thinking that is a stupid point and that has no application josh i know this i'm a 21st century sophisticated human being yeah you are here's how i want you to apply it and maybe a way that our 21st century sophistication doesn't always get i want you to think not just of geography of borders and countries on a map. I want you to think about all of life and how there is no territory or region where God's power is not active in all of life, in all of death, and in all of creation. Here's what I mean by that. The wound that you think will never heal. The task Or hardship that you're in that you think is impossible to get out of. The friend or family member you have that is so hard-hearted you think the gospel will never penetrate their life. The country or region that is so far away from God that revival will never be able to come there. The relationship that's so broken it will never be restored. The evil that's so prevalent that it will it, it'll never be defeated. All these places are territories that we think that God has no power in. It's off limits to him. It's beyond his jurisdiction. Wrong. If he showed up on Mount Carmel, the home turf of Baal, and whooped him, he's going to show up in those places that we think he has no jurisdiction, and he's going to whoop whatever we think is holding them back there. Now here's where it gets dicey. Here's where you're going to boo me. That is true even of territories that we don't want him to be in. How about these for some territories? Suffering. Affliction. Hurt. Trial and tribulation. The world is full of trials and tribulations. And sometimes we console our hearts and we console others by saying things like, God isn't in that. Or God had no power in that. That was beyond his control. And I know we're trying to grapple with hard things and and bring peace to hurting hearts. But listen, those statements about God not having control over those things, that's more true of, of, of Baal than it is of the triune God who created all things, and through whom all things come to pass. I know it's hard to wrap your head around suffering in your life, but please, 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 I want you to hear, God isn't caught off guard by your affliction. And your suffering is not a place, it's not a region that he has no power to touch. His power and reach can extend even there. And I think that if you're willing to think on that and sit on that, you will see that that is way more comforting than saying that God has no power over those things. His reach is in all things throughout life, death, and all of creation. His reach even extends to the sins that we think can never be forgiven. You know, there is a detail in this text that's often overlooked. I am guilty of it. I've overlooked it. And that is that with all the fireworks and all the the huge things going on, the reality is that the center of it all is a sacrifice. The bull that was placed upon the altar was a burnt offering offered to the Lord. The burnt offering was in Israel the offering given to have God's people confess their sin and to be drawn back to him in forgiveness and grace. And so when that bull is laid upon the altar and the fire from heaven descends to consume it, God is not only proving that he's the only God, he's also saying, I accept this sacrifice and I am welcoming my people back into relationship with me. The last thing that Elijah prayed was, he said, Oh Lord, let them know that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back to you. When that fire descends, God is saying, Come back. I am a God that hasn't rejected you because of your unfaithfulness, hasn't rejected you because of your fickle hearts. If you confess your sin. If you come to me with contrition and brokenness and repentance, I am welcoming you back into relationship with me. And so when I think about this borderless God, I see it as there is no region that is beyond his power. That is, there is nothing in life or death or creation that's beyond his power. There's no hard situation that's beyond his power. There's no circumstance that's beyond his power. And there is no sin that is beyond his forgiveness for any that would come to him in faith sprawl out before him and say, have mercy. It's only hinted at here in Elijah. But when we get to the New Testament and see Jesus Christ as the one upon the altar, we see how he did it and how he's inviting you back into his presence. There is only one God who is deserving of all your worship and affection. But this God has shown you is a God full of grace and mercy choose who you will serve but whoever you choose give it your all let's pray Father I pray that the words of this scripture your word in this scripture would stay in our hearts and minds for the days to come They would teach us what it is to be a people that don't limp between multiple different opinions, don't limp between multiple gods, but give our everything to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.